Welcome back, Rebels. I've been thinking about pro wrestling. Oh, I feel like this is something you probably always think about. Is there anything specific you've been thinking about pro wrestling? Yeah, I do. I do always think about pro wrestling, and uh, I know I know about fifty million people have just clicked off the podcast as soon as I said that. But um, but bear with me. I was thinking <laughs> about how like pro wrestling is so weird mm-hmm. you're dressed in spandex you're throwing each other around but not hurting each other but trying to make it look like you are hurting each other and i was thinking about i was just thinking about pro wrestling as i do like having fun yeah. in my brain and i was just thinking like these people that do this for like it's it is a crazy career like obviously our career is pretty crazy but like compare it to that and that is a pretty yeah. bizarre thing and it just made me think about people's life paths and how to to 90% of people listening to this podcast like they they would have no interest in anything to do with pro wrestling people in spandex wrestling with each other but to the people that are involved with that it is like it's their everything and to become a really really good pro wrestler and to become like well respected and have five star matches and be the the top of your field it's like that is everything to the people that are within that, and it just it just really made me think about the path of your life and those decisions that you make and and the the sort of quest for greatness in in whatever field and and just how yeah it's just crazy it just it just got me yeah thinking. I suppose wrestling's a really weird one isn't it because it's like young kids will sit and watch wrestling on TV and they'll be like these people are famous they're earning loads of money they're doing what they want for a living. I want to do that too. So is that going to make me also want to dress up in spandex, start fighting each other, pretending like practicing moves where we don't actually hurt each other. But I suppose like if that wasn't on TV, then you wouldn't think, oh, actually that's a career path that I could actually go down. I look at these wrestlers and I think it's it's just such an interesting analogy because I compare them to someone who wants to be a jewellery maker or a singer or a, a stand-up comic or or a public speaker or whatever the career is and it's exactly the same and it's just so funny to look at what is a really weird profession and just realize that everything that's going on in that is exactly the same because what you're talking about is the glitz and the glamour of the tv product where like a small percentage of people make it to but the sort of grim reality of it is the traveling the country for yeah like 365 days a year wrestling in school gyms in front of 10 people while you learn your craft and while you while you become truly great at doing it that is the same route that so many industries have like so many places like will have this pinnacle of this is exactly where i want to be but you don't really look at all of the hard work that goes into it you don't see all of that training that that those wrestlers are putting in every week like it's funny because it's like for me i'm like when we first started talking about wrestling and i was like this is something that i watched as a kid and i was kind of like it's all just stupid like it's all just basically like eastenders in a ring but then you kind of start to explain to me actually how much hard work goes into it how much those people train how much like actual effort goes into it to make it look the way it does and then suddenly I feel like as soon as you understand that, then you start to appreciate it more for it actually being a sport rather than it being just like this theatre. And I think that is just a, a perfect example of like a creative career. It's like people don't people look at the people who are smashing it in kind of like on YouTube, in the video space and all these different like creative endeavours. And they're not looking at, they don't understand that behind the scenes, 
there is loads of hard work and it isn't just all that glitz and glamour. And I think another part that, that comes in that is absolutely crucial is the self-belief. And when I look at the people that have made it in that profession, it's like the only ones that have made it. When you when you hear them interviewed, it's like they just have this burning desire and this absolute self-belief that they were going to be successful, that they were going to make it. And that is so important. And I, I think that becoming the person that you want to be, no matter what your career, it, it happens through these incremental changes, but it but everything is founded on that self-belief that you will make this a success. Yeah. So it's, it's the same with all sports people. Like they just have in their mind that I'm going to be the best at this. I'm going to win. I'm like, it's having that mindset from the start. So I feel like even if you're not physically as good as someone else, if you've got a stronger mindset, there's a good chance you're going to persevere and actually make it all the way through. Because I can guarantee that the, the best, fastest runners in the world aren't the kind of biologically the fastest bestest people in the world it's just the people unless you're unless you're like yeah unless you're like a Usain Bolt who obviously is like yeah yeah but there might be someone on earth who's got a better physical attributes to be a faster runner but they just aren't interested or don't have that mindset or the grit to put through all the training to get there because it's like Usain Bolt is he's like if you're at the top of your game if you're like an Olympian you've got to, you've got both of them you've got insane physical attributes and just insane grit and perseverance to get through that. There's going to be loads of people with insane physical attributes who don't have that grit, who are going to drop out when it gets too hard. They don't want to go, go to training twice a day for seven days a week because they want to do stuff for themselves. And But it is that grit that that is going to get you through it. It's going to push you in that direction. That's really interesting. And this is obviously a massive generalization and you're you're an anomaly to this because you played basketball. But I feel like a lot of creative people and i'm so i can certainly class myself in this a lot of creative people were never into sports so certainly for me in school i didn't relate to the sporty jock type people yeah. for me it was like the the creative arty skaters that that type of crowd that sort of appealed to me and so through through going down that route of all of my peers being like these type obviously like skateboarding is athletic um and there's definitely sort of progression in that but I, I feel like you're a lot more relaxed and you don't have that dog eat dog competitiveness yeah. that comes from the sporting world and i think maybe it would be good for a lot of creatives to adapt the sports mentality when it comes to their work even though i feel a little bit sick saying that <laughs> say it because it's like always my whole life like i used to bunk games i never went to a, like i had a whole year in um, secondary school where i managed to skive games for the entire <laughs> year and not go once um I, very simply because you used to have to go and i mean this is the 90s whatever you used to have to go and write on the wall what you were going to do that term me and my friend just didn't write on the wall. <laughs> so when so they had we, the registers so to read we, from you and never there. A hundred percent. And I got away with it. Like that is, that fucking still blows my mind to this day that I got away with that. Anyway, um, but but like maybe if we can bring, like certainly now in my career, I have got that sporting, like fuck this, we're going to be successful. We've got yeah. to make this work. Like, and, and our team, like let's work together as a team to reach the finish line to use a shit sport analogy. Yeah, I think like I think a sport analogy is such an interesting way to look at creativity because you do have to train and it does have to be relentless like you have to get really good you have to become an expert in your craft 
And that's not going to happen if you just do it a little bit here and there. It's going to have to take dedication. It's going to have to be, I'm going to give this amount of time every day. Even if you say, oh, I'm too busy, I've not got enough. Like, If you want to do this, then you have to put in the time to do that. It's like be a sports person, like, like be a creative athlete. I think that's a quite a nice way to phrase it. It's like be someone who gets up, trains every day and make sure that, that they're going to win. Like you, what is the Olympics of creativity? I suppose that would almost be doing it for a living. So if you can get to the stage where you're there, where you're training every single day to be able to go and kind of put yourself out there in the creative world and then go and succeed, like that's what everyone's aiming for. That's what people want. It's to have a creative career that fulfills them. That is just, they're enjoying what they do every day, but it's only going to happen with that constant, constant training. I saw this great quote on Instagram the other day, which was, I'll see it when I believe it. So obviously a twist on the, I'll believe it when I see it yeah. kind of uh, turn of phrase that people use. Um, but yeah, I'll see it when I believe it. And I think that's that's the start of everyone's journey is is visualize it first, then then you put in the training. And then, and as you do that, like like you'll start to find your voice. It's like, I feel like I'm, I'm still finding my voice. I feel like I'm, we've been podcasting for like nearly two years yeah. and like I'm finally not now kind of the these intros we don't we don't plan them like we we literally have a two minute conversation when we sit down and we go oh what do you want to talk about today and for this one it was like oh I think we should talk about like life paths yeah. and which way you're going you had no idea I was going to throw pro wrestling at you and and like and we just go but that's because we've we've evolved over the last two years we've practiced and we've started to find our voice and find out what it is that we're trying to to get people to do like get them to take that action get them to to achieve more have more be more yeah and i think that's why it's like going back to the sport metaphor as well it's like if you're starting you're not going to beat usain bolt in a race it's going to take a shit ton of training to get there but it is putting that in consistently that is going to allow you to at least compete and at least be in that arena I think now we've started talking about the sports thing. I think there's so many different ways that we could like can learn from this. Even kind of the, the idea of a gym, somewhere that you go to train, is just by having somewhere in your house, having somewhere that you can go to that you're dedicating time to your specific craft. Like recently, I put up a post on LinkedIn this week where I've just kind of built myself a new desk that is away from my computer. There's basically nothing tech is allowed on it. It's just got a notepad and a pen. So if I go there, that's like just to go and be creative, just to write things down, get my thoughts out. And it's just having that little space where you can go and effectively train that I think will really, really benefit so many people. Even if that's just like a place in your house you dedicate to this craft that you're going to do. And it's easy to access. The fact that I can go over there, there's a pen and paper waiting for me ready. If you, no matter what it is you want to do creatively, make sure that that's there for you to go and do and it's easy to access it's not like a, okay now i need to go and get all these things out of the cupboard and start because actually if it's hard then you're probably not going to actually go and start doing it because it's a bit of a faff whereas by making it as easy as possible and dedicating a certain amount of time every single day to that it's only going to lead to good things so yeah if you're listening to this have you been to the gym this week and I'm talking about the creative gym, the gym of creativity. Um, get yourself a, a annual membership and actually turn up to this one. Yeah. Actually go in, go and put the work in. And, and you mentioned there like the the other star athletes, like those would be the people in your field that you're looking at. And it seems so far away and it seems so, uh, 
uh, and it seems like almost like an impossible place to get to. I think that is so good to have that. And it's so useful because again, it goes back to the, I'll believe it when I see it, yeah. I'll see it when I believe it, of of looking at those people. And if if they are, so for example, when it comes to like pricing, for us in the beginning, it was like we had a difficult time with the confidence of of charging enough for our services. However, as soon as we learned what other people were charging, it it gives you the confidence of if that if I can become that person, that's a person that charges this much. I can be- become that. So then it involves self reflection of us looking at those people and going, "Would well, would well, do our services match up with what they're offering?" And if they do, then then yeah, we can charge that much because that's that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. So take those take those star athletes and either put a poster on your wall and look at it every day and say that's where I'm trying to get to or rip that poster down don't ever pay attention to it but just keep in the back of your mind that's where you're headed because I know motivation for some people is is going to be different like and for a lot of people like following those star athletes is bringing them nothing but misery because it is such a long arduous process that step by step and to 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 know that there's that many hundreds of steps ahead of you sometimes it's easier to just focus on what the next step is and i think this week's guest is such a perfect example of of going on that journey like like choosing that path in life that she wanted to go down at the age of 16 and she was like right this is this is where i want to spend my time this is what i want to be doing and just went for it let's get into this week's episode with liz melee yeah lovely liz melee i'm kind of hoping that she becomes my mate yeah. i think like I think we might be mates with her. She's <laughs> so fucking cool. Um, I really love her comedy and I love what she's done. Like we talk about it in this episode, but like pandemic fucking it, it is like so crippling for comedians. Um, I mean, for, for everyone involved in creativity, it's been really fucking hard. But like comedians, it, like you have to be in front of people. There's no no way around it. And so instead of like, she was talking to Comedy Central about selling her special and like obviously such a huge career moment for her but instead of like when they dropped all their budgets because of corona instead of like dwelling on that she's like fuck it i just put it out for free on youtube and like it's done so well so many people have seen it it's brought so many more people into her bubble um and it's just the the right way to be and and i guess it's kind of an abundance mindset of let me pop this out because there'll be more opportunities and comedy central were interested before they'll be interested again when this is all over like she's just got the right mindset yeah and sometimes having that abundance mindset is the best thing to do in the long run it's because more things will come and i think too many people do think actually i put all this time into this thing this has to be the thing that's going to make me whereas actually if you put that out for free or giving it to people at a reduced cost or basically getting in front of more eyes can actually be a lot more beneficial than just hoping all of putting all your eggs in one basket on this one product or one thing that you've created yeah 100 so uh enough of our ramble let's uh let's get on with liz liz Mille is a stand-up comedian and writer liz started comedy at just 16 years old she's appeared on tv performed worldwide and has built a strong loyal online fan base mostly by cleverly packaging short comedy clips that have gone viral in this episode, we talk about cats, comedy, and putting in the work. Perfect. Go. Cool. Perfect. I'm going to leave your perfect in. <laughs> that's, a, that's a cat joke. Well done, David. So I think people 
read a self-help book, they watch an inspirational speech, they read an Instagram quote, and they go, yes, I want to be that. And then it takes work. Hi, Liz. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Liz, why are you writing a book about cats? Why am I writing? Oh, I like how like aggressive this gets right off the bat. Um, <laughs> I don't have any knowledge of anything else. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not very well educated and I'm not, it's like all I got. My, both of my parents are veterinarians. It's my, they're my favorite. It's like, it's weird. I think in quarantine, I've been pretending I'm like a wildlife photographer. And by that, I mean, every time I see a stray cat, I stop what I'm doing immediately. And like, I literally, <laughs> I literally like sit on the ground and I take pictures of like bodega cats. Um, and I get like really into it. And it's just like my favorite pastime because I have almost nothing to do. Yeah, I just I like them. I you know, what really happened is I have an old joke from I think my first or second album, I can't even remember that just talks about cats in a shitty way but from a loving perspective and this publisher was looking for exactly that yeah I, and i suppose that's where the title comes from uh why why cats are assholes um i i hate cats i, I um so it's really funny like obviously we started talking um because you reposted a picture of one of my cats that i that i painted in the street and yeah. um i started painting animals because they're they're much more forgiving than than painting people um and so when i'm doing street pieces i can do them much quicker um and like i like how cats look visually and they're really fun to paint but i don't want to own any just because they are assholes yeah but that's also i mean to me anybody that says they don't like cats just hasn't spent enough time yeah. with them or hasn't found their cat the same way that like anybody that like is like oh men are the worst or women are the worst i'm like oh you just <laughs> haven't found your person yet like that's fine but like i i just think it's a it's a generalization that gets out of hand and they're the cutest thing ever. There's some cats that I'll forever be like, you are the worst, but like most of them, they just sleep all day. There's like, truly there's nothing wrong with them. They just, they kind of, they just don't listen the way dogs do. Cause I feel like growing up for me, like I was always like a dog person. We'd always have dogs in the house and I was always like, cats are the worst because they come into my garden, they stress my dogs out and I never really, never really saw a point of them. And then we fostered seven kittens at one point and that was like the most magical experience. And I was like, okay, now I fully love cats. But yeah, I completely agree with the fact that they all have completely different personalities. And we nicknamed, like they all came to us with names. And I think half of them ended up with names that we'd given them because we're like, oh, well, you're a sassy little bitch. So you're now called sassy. The first one that came out of the thing had shit all up at the back of it. So that became Pooh Bum. And it was just like all of them had their own little personalities and I feel like people are like that as well. So I feel like if you don't like cats, then it's, you probably don't like people too. Well, also, I think it's, weirdly enough, I think it's kind of how you're raised. Like I wasn't raised in the most loving environment. So if you, I think there's two ways that, that you either need a lot of attention so a dog can give you that. A dog can be like, you're my person. I'll follow you wherever you go. But like I wasn't really raised like that and I also think I really much enjoy my independence so even like with my boyfriend like I'm on the couch reading he's in the other room watching something and I don't think this guy doesn't love me he's doing his thing I'm doing my thing and then at some point my boyfriend would literally come on the couch and just sit next to me and I'm like oh we're bonding and that's almost how I feel like a cat is where you're like oh we'll ignore each other for like 15 hours and then at one point you'll be like I'm ready to snuggles and I'll be like okay cool <laughs> 
So I think it's also a little bit like how you accept and receive love. And if you need like constant validation or if you're okay with like two people or two animals coexisting and then coming together when you want to come together. If I'm doing some like real deep soul searching, then uh, I think my hatred of cats is uh, it comes down to my association of cats with a certain ex. So if I'm <laughs> so if I'm actually truly honest with myself, like there have been cat encounters when I've been like, ah, you're not too bad. And I think because I ignore them, because I've always had this chip on my shoulder of like, ah, oh, it's a fucking cat. Um, because you ignore them and you don't want attention from them, they beeline straight towards yeah. you. So whenever wherever I am, like the cat finds me, and I did kind of, I am kind of low key like. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The cat's like really digging. <laughs> yeah, I'm like that. Like my girlfriend really wants the attention of the cats and I'm a bit like, I'm fine to have them around, but I'm not that hyped. And they'll all flood towards me and love love a stroke from me, but like just completely ignore her. <laughs> I, I My whole thing is that like, if anybody doesn't like them, they either haven't gotten to know a cat or like you said, they have some kind of bad association. And that'd be like, that's the tr- that's truly the 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 comparison of I don't I don't like women because you had one girlfriend that hurt you in high school <laughs> and you're just like cool bro I don't know how to help you we're not all the same wow we're we're off to a hot start but um you, you, <laughs> you um I'm not I'm not even gonna, gonna go down the hating women uh, route um the, the, <laughs> that ex only made me hate cats not uh, the entire gender but um so Liz you started uh, comedy at 16 years old um firstly how did you get away with that how were you allowed to uh, perform in places so I don't know if it works differently in, in England. In in the US, for the most part, if your club serves food, um, you're allowed to have people that are under uh, 21 since our, our drinking age is 21. Um, I did get kicked out of a lot of places. I mean, I still, this hairstyle is not helping me, but I still look pretty young. Um, so I looked very young when I was 16. Um, I was telling somebody the other day, I used to, there was a strip club and next to the strip club, they converted this other room into a comedy club. So you'd have strippers walking in and out of it all the time. And that was one of the earliest clubs I worked at. And I would say, I, if I did it like eight times, three of them, I got kicked out of it. They're like, what is this fucking 16 year old? And I would try to convince them like, Hey, I'm just going to do a set and then I'll leave. Like, I like, I was like, I don't care. They have boobs. I have boobs. I don't see the difference. Like, I don't want them. I'm not interested, but most like a lot of comedy is done in bars and that I had to wait to, uh, participate in until I was 21. But for the most part, a lot of comedy clubs, um, serve food and, most of them let you in. Some of them even let you in as young as 14, but most of them will let let you in as long as they serve food. Or if you have a parental figure, all places are a little different. But, you know, I've seen babies in bars out there, so I don't really trust the UK's judgment either. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't... Honestly, comedy clubs just function a little bit differently than um, uh, bars per se. Like they just have like different rules. You're the third comedian that we've had on on the show, and I, I really love it because I think comedy is such a pure version of basically what we're trying to do with this podcast of like, if you keep doing a thing, you get better at it, and then you can do it, and that can be your thing. And I think comedy is like such a, because there's this sort of baptism by fire, but like, how do you, how did you handle that so young? Like, I'm I'm guessing there were nights where you go up there and you completely bomb. Like, how do you, and, and like, you were a shy kid, right? Like, how, how did you kind of overcome that, get on stage and then go back again, even if you had a shit night? I think, I mean, I think it all depends on your, your drive. Like, for me, 
I felt so lost as a teenager and I was so unhappy. Like nobody really loves like my origin story, which is like, how did you get into comedy? I was like, I was deeply depressed <laughs> and yeah, no, it was I love the that only story. thing that made me happy. So there's a part of me that I felt lost. I didn't feel like I had any friends. I felt like I couldn't be myself. I felt like I didn't even know myself because my family upbringing was so strict that it didn't allow me to have the space to even really know what my own thoughts were, if that makes sense. And I felt so emotionally repressed that I discovered stand-up when I was like 13, 14. And it just one of the ways that I could get my parents to be kinder or listen was to be funny. So I would always quote like SNL sketches and stuff like that. And I thought I wanted to be like a funny actress, but really when I discovered stand up, this, it was just me. People had to listen to me. You get to spew your opinions, which again, I didn't even know what my opinions were, but I was like, I think I have them. And, and all the attention was on me and I got to make people laugh and I, I got to bring joy I just, everything just kind of lined up in a way that I was so into it and I was so passionate about it that even though I didn't think I was going to be good at it, because like I said, I didn't feel like I had strong opinions. I didn't feel like I was original or or funny per se. I, I was shy and um, kind of scared to interact with people. It became this like bubble of where I could get to know myself because I always liked writing. So I was always writing like little short stories and, and stuff like that. But now I had this... Um, these parameters, the same way that I always say, like, I don't love Twitter. I don't love that. It's only, you know, at first it was one 150 characters. Now it's, um, 240 or 250, whatever it is. But like, I don't love those parameters, but those parameters make you be creative in a way that maybe you wouldn't have been if, uh, if you just had a blank page and you could do whatever you want. And I would say the same thing with stand up, which is, all right, you have to be funny. You have to be funny quick. The jokes have to be somewhat quick. There's this kind of format. You don't get to, most people don't have props. You don't have a scenery behind you. So it's this very like raw, simplistic way of expressing yourself that makes you be creative with very little, um, extra, uh, stuff that it just, I don't know. It, it, it made me feel like I could do something on my own and all I had to do was just work at it. And, you know, podcasts weren't a thing when I started, but there was a couple of like how to comedy books and, you know, a couple of like comedians being interviewed on like NPR, like our, our national public radio that I, I just kind of learned very quickly that nobody's good at it when they first start and that they often say it takes 10 years for you to find your voice. So it made me feel better that if I don't know what my voice is now at 16, that doesn't mean I might not know what my voice is when I'm 26. And I don't know, I I did my first show and it was it was a bringer show. I don't know if you guys ever had this, but it's just a thing that a lot of clubs would do, which is if you brought five guests, like people that pay to cover, you could get five minutes of stage time. And, and it was... I got laughs and like, I have the tape. I mean, it's almost 20 years old. I have this VHS tape. Somebody turned into an MP4 for me. And I've, I think I watched it like eight years ago and I couldn't get through it. It was quite painful, but like people did laugh at certain parts and it wasn't like I murdered or anything, but like in my mind, I set the parameters of success so low because of everything that I read that the fact that I got one or two laughs made me feel like I wasn't bad at this. And I, I understood that it took work to get better. And I think that's the biggest thing. Cause like, I'll be honest, I think I'm really drawn to art. Like I love art. Like can't really see my room, but like a bunch of these paintings were done by like friends and people like, like 
that sell art on the street and stuff. Like I'm very much obsessed with drawings and art and like all this stuff. I love street art clearly. And I think a lot of it comes from that was my first love. Like I, I really wanted to draw when I was really young, like probably like six, seven, eight years old. And I remember seeing a cartoon and waiting for my parents to finish work. So I'm like in the lobby of their work and I was trying to draw. And I was so frustrated that this dinosaur that I had in my head, when I went to go put it on the paper, it looked nothing like it. And in my mind as a you know six, seven year old, I was like, oh, I'm not good at it. But then when I discovered stand up at 13, 14, I was old enough and old enough to know and mature enough to know that it took time and that it, and skills were built with repetitive um, uh, uh, discipline and work that I kind of wish if I discovered art later, it would have been something I would have actively worked at and didn't think it was an innate skill. So I think in a lot of ways, I was just I was it was a combination of being sad and having nothing else that I enjoyed, but also being mature enough to know that it took work and I was willing to be bad at it for a while. And that didn't scare me, which I I most of my friends are about 10 years older than me and they started in their mid to late 20s or early 30s and that's a big sacrifice. You're you're supposed to have a job and a family and you know security and money and bombing in front of your friends is embarrassing and it, there's so much more that was on the line for them that wasn't on the line for me and I feel very blessed because I do I do get embarrassed. I I there's things now that I'm like I can't believe I did that because I don't feel the same way. Those risks are a lot scarier now at 35 than they would have ever been at 16. And that's where like I have like a mixed blessing of doing it before I realized how scary this is. So when they say it takes 10 years to find your voice, do you agree with that statement? Or would you kind of say it takes longer or shorter? Like, how did it work for you? It's funny. I think that statement needs to be broken down a little bit. Like, mm. um, in some ways, your voice can be uh, a com combination of just um, your confidence, what you want to talk about, um, how you want to talk about it, um, your style of comedy, um, what you're willing to touch and not touch, um, what types of reactions you're trying to get from people. I feel like I very early on had a distinct style that has morphed because I was very deadpan when I started because um, – as you can see, like me talking naturally, I trip on my word. I'm not very, I'm dyslexic. So I can't find words very easily. Like to me, if I was saying this thing and I had to write it down and polish it, it would come out so smooth and I would sound so smart. And that's <laughs> almost how my standup feels like. I feel like my standup is like me editing to be the best version of myself because I don't, I'm not, I don't naturally just know the right words and how to say things. So what, stand up, I keep polishing and polishing and polishing so that if I'm telling a story about a guy cutting me off in traffic, the original version is I was like, ah, go fuck yourself. But the six months later version, I say something really articulate and sassy and smart. And you're just like, oh my God, I want to be here when I grow up. So there's a part of me that's like, I always had, weirdly enough, very early on, I, even if I didn't consciously know who I was, who I was, was there from an early start, how I talked about things. I was always really dark. Um, I always liked pushing the envelope a little bit, but my ability to push myself to where I am now in comedy, where I have an idea and I, I, I kind of keep pulling back the layers of the onion. So I understand myself, um, 
the self-awareness that I have took time. Like, I don't think I would be the comic I was if I wasn't in therapy, if I hadn't had my heart broken the way I've had my heart broken, if I didn't travel the world like I have in the last eight years. So, and some of it is because I started so young, which not a lot of people did, I kind of grew up as a human the same time I grew up as a, as an artist and a writer. And, um, I think it took me a lot longer than most people. And so I would say I really started to find my voice around eight to 10 years. Um, but I started to really polish and hone in that voice around 13 years. So a part of me feels like I've just started to have a baby amount of success in my career in the last couple of years. And I had early success. I was on TV when I was in my early 20s. Um, I was passed at a lot of clubs and got a lot of work when I was when I was 19 years old. I had little moments that were um, a little bit of a blessing and definitely probably got them a little too early in some people's mind. But um, if I would have popped off, if I would have been somebody that was on TV all the time or whatever, seven years in when I was starting to get on TV more, I don't think I would have developed into the comic I was today because success would have reinforced that this was good enough and nothing would have pushed me to keep doing it. But because I was um, so obscure and I had to work so hard to get road work and for people to know who I was and to to keep building my career, I really pushed my my voice and my style and what was important to me artistically to a level that I don't think I would have pushed otherwise. So I do think people can find who they are earlier, but if you really want to hone who you are, get better at it and, and take it to a level that most people aren't, I honestly think it, it, it takes a long time. And I think some of the people that we revere, like, like I think of somebody like Bill Burr, you know, Bill Burr wasn't a household name or even that successful until 15 years in. Was he funny five years in? Probably. But I think, and I'm sure, and nobody, don't get me wrong. I kind of don't want to like, I don't like that I've been doing this 18 years and most people don't know who I am. But since it's already happened, I do feel like it's a blessing. I do feel like it's made me a stronger writer than the average person because I had to, I had to decide when I was good enough as opposed to most people, the industry, the industry decided when they were good enough and people stop pushing once they get acceptance. And I never got acceptance, if that makes sense. I think that's so interesting. Yeah, because I, I, I think that people panic um, when they don't get certain opportunities and they feel they feel like, oh, I've, I've lost out on this and that's going to be a massive like hit to my career, like whatever the field is. But that's such an interesting way of looking at it, of, of like, like, by not getting that by not getting that opportunity you have to get better like yeah. like you have to sharpen everything and and then and then if you do get the opportunity then perhaps that's going to cause you to just coast which is like the worst thing for a creative really is going into autopilot and you and you see it a lot you see comics you see comics you see musicians you see tons of people that their first or second albums were amazing and then somebody said this is amazing and you stop pushing yourself to be creatively different or you start when somebody goes, this is great. You go, I guess it's great. As opposed to before you did had to decide when it was done, you had to decide when it was good and you kind of filtered your stuff off the audience. But now you have a manager or an agent or, you know, even sometimes a fan base that can kind of, um, dull the, the sharpness of your mind that does. And it stops pushing you to be the creative person that was good enough for you, not good enough for others, but just good enough for you. And I think because I always had to satiate my own, um, aspirations, that was 
that was the thing that got me to keep pushing myself as opposed to what the industry was doing. And so I'm, I am grateful because I, I like the work that I'm doing and I'm proud of my voice and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of how hard I worked, but I can be honest that if I had made it 10 years earlier, I might not be this version of myself. And in what ways do you push yourself to grow? Like, do you put yourself in situations where almost like, you know, no one's going to laugh, like put yourself in a room where it's going to, you know, you're going to struggle and grow from that. Absolutely. I bomb all the time. Like I kind of joke with, you know, when the world was somewhat more normal, I would, I have paid gigs. So like the way the city works and uh, London is actually kind of similar. Cause I really, I love the, the, the comedy scene in London. Um, it's similar to New York where there's, there's bars that have little rooms. There's comedy clubs that have these kind of showcase shows where like five comics are doing 10 to 15 minutes. And then you really don't make a lot of money doing these bar shows and, or, weekday club shows, but then you travel, you go on the road and that's where you make money. I'll go and do an hour in Ohio. I'll go do an hour in Leeds and that's where I'll make more money. So during the week, if you're doing a bar show and you're not making any money, my logic was if you're not paying me, I can take a shit on stage and it's not my problem. Nobody paid money. This is where I get to experiment. So then if you pay me a little bit of money, people have paid a cover. There's a little bit of responsibility, but it's a Tuesday. It's it's 11 o'clock at night. Most people, what are you doing with your lives? So a part of me is like, I'll slip in some new stuff in between. So like no paid, I'll just go on stage and talk out of my ass. And if I bomb the whole time, I don't care if I'm being paid a small amount of money and it's like a bullshit weekday show. Um, I might jokes that are kind of polished, but not completely there. I'll do like baby experimentation. And then during headlining spots I'm being paid people got babysitters that's my solid work like that's going to be my best stuff and I might ask them if it's my fan base I might be like hey are you okay with me trying a couple of new things and that might be like a little moment where for five minutes I might test stuff but for the most part I'm like gonna like hit you in the face with comedy and my feeling is is that by having a place that I can experiment and not worry about what how people feel about me, I'm constantly growing. But if you're always worried about being the best and always hitting people in the face and want, caring what other people think, you're going to be too scared to grow. So I always have to have during the week a place where I can just, you know, I call it taking a dump on stage where like people are like, is this good? Like, and I'm going, I don't know. I don't think it's good. And it might be almost like that first set I told you about where like, I only get one or two laughs, but I know from experience, okay, that's where we got to go. And I'll, okay, next show. And then I sit and I edit. And then the next time I do those jokes, they're slightly better. And I build from the ground up every time. And so because every couple of months, I'll have a couple of weeks of just pure bombing. I never get scared to bomb. I never get scared to experiment. I never get scared to be wrong. Um, and I, I'm known in my community as a writer. I constantly have new material. One, because it's my favorite part. To me, this is the puzzle part. I have an idea. I think it's funny. Oh God, it's not funny. Maybe my idea. Okay. That part people seem, and I start skewing the idea based on Intel every time I go on stage. So sometimes the idea is like, I'm writing a joke right now about express jeans. It's like a, um, a, a chain store here. Um, so I have the idea where I'm just like, why express jeans are both the best jeans, but super annoying. And then somebody laughs at this part, but they don't laugh at the part that I think is funny. So now it just gets skewed a little bit. And now this joke that was originally about jeans is about coupons and about the stupid coupons you get from this 
chain store where you're just like, why is this, why is this your ploy for marketing? And now this joke is more about marketing and the stupidness of it than it is about the fact that I buy these jeans because they're specifically made for short people. So it's like, it's weird. So it's like my ideas are still my ideas, but based on what people are showing interest in, I start to connect with them in different ways. But I'm, I, it really, it's about listening and it's about listening to the audience. And, and also don't get me wrong. I've had jokes where like, it doesn't do well. And I don't think, Oh, I'm wrong. I think, Oh, I didn't say it the right way so that they can connect with me. So then I might start changing the language as opposed to changing the perspective. So I, I mean, I think my, my biggest asset is, is not being scared of rejection, especially because my whole career has been rejection. And I, I kind of tell young comics, like you shouldn't be scared to be invisible. I mean, you can do your best work without people knowing who you are so that when you do know your voice, when you aren't scared of taking risks, when people start to pay attention to you, your actions are no longer determined by fear. They're determined by what you want to talk about and what you want to do at your career. I think it's so interesting because I feel like comedy and marketing are almost the exact same thing you're basically putting something out there seeing what the audience reacts to and then doing more of that and then constantly evolving on that it's like a b testing yeah the audience is like a focus group i've i've always felt like i and that's what's so funny is like the way comedy works for us is you know you're at this baby level you're doing your jokes in front of live audiences for not a lot of money and then, the, and then somebody goes, we think that should be on TV. And so you've tested it for three to six months, maybe even a year. And then some executive goes, we want to see this on TV. And they go, you should change this. And this isn't working. You should do that. And you go, dude, it's tested. It's perfect. It's done. What do, you know what I mean? Like you're changing something that I've done. I've done all the research. I'm right. You saw it once. You have no idea what you're talking about. And it also gives you the confidence that you do it and then it doesn't work. And you go, that's not me. That's on you guys. Because this is this is foolproof. You might just not be my audience or things might be weird in this room for whatever reason. But my joke isn't wrong. You guys are wrong. <laughs> and how do you deal with that? Like, how do you say to someone like, look, I know I'm right in this. If someone else is happens, if someone else happens to be paying for it. Oh, I'm sassy. I'll definitely tell them. <laughs> like, I have no problem telling an audience like, oh, this is on you guys. And don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't have a problem with people not liking what I do. I know I'm very, I'm loud. I'm aggressive. I curse a lot. I say fucked up things. Um, I'm, I don't always come from a perspective. Like uh, my special, I have a couple of, uh, I have a, like two abortion jokes. I have a miscarriage joke and I've had people write to me like, Hey, I really enjoyed your special except for the abortion jokes. And I'm fine with that. Like I, I'm never going to tell somebody that they, if they don't like all of what I do, they're not a real fan or they don't know comedy. Everybody's allowed to have their perspective. I just don't want, if you don't like a certain topic or how I talk about something, I don't want you to throw my artistic ideas away the same way that you might have a friend that you don't agree with on X and you know David already said he doesn't yeah. like cats I didn't leave you know <laughs> I didn't say like fuck this podcast you're allowed to like there's this weird belief that if you don't completely align with um what you're watching on TV or or, or the performance that somehow you can enjoy it but like it's the same way that I never understood well why people were like women can't be funny when you're just like I'm just a human. I'm just a human with similar, sometimes different experiences. If I can watch a guy talk about his dick for 10 minutes, why can't you hear about a date I went on? It's not that much different. Like we're all just, we're all sharing this experience. I just happen to have maybe different perspectives in this way, but 
I'm still a New Yorker. I'm still a human. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. You know what I mean? I'm an angry person. There's so many other things that you could relate to me on. Why are you honing on honing in on just my gender? I only think that's a fraction of my perspective. So for me, I if I see an audience not connecting with me, I might think, okay, what is it? Is it because I'm talking about too much stuff that's a woman's perspective? Is it because I'm cursing too much and this might be um, a part of the world that just doesn't, that isn't how they connect. Like I did, I did shows in the Philippines. It was going great. Like the show, the show was going amazing. And it was mostly people that lived in the Philippines. Sometimes when I travel overseas, it's a lot of expats. And then I did one of my abortion jokes and it bombed like truly like complete silence. And I was like, Whoa. And it just kind of hit me in the face cause it was going so well. So then I was like, okay, let's recalibrate. Did more stuff did great. And then two women came up to me afterwards. They're like, oh, it's illegal here. So like, not only is it a weird, it's not just taboo. It's like legit, like people don't know about it. It's very hush hush. And I was like, oh, I should really do my research before I come here. Like that was dumb on my part, but I'm not mad at them. It's just, oh, okay. That's something I learned. And now I, I know about it. So because I've traveled all over the world and I've had so many different experiences with audience, I can kind of recalibrate and be like, and kind of pick up on stuff. Um, and then sometimes you just kind of go, all right, these aren't my audience and I'm just going to sit in it. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not uncomfortable or sometimes awful. Um, but when it happens enough, it doesn't bother you the same way that like, I get hate comments on the internet all the time. And I look at them and I go, all right, like I use the word cunt, like it's very harsh in the U S I don't think it's harsh for you guys. And I don't think anything of it, but I've had people that are like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then I get called one on the internet and I go, it doesn't affect me. It's just a word. I don't mean anything when I say it. They might be trying to hurt me, but they don't know anything about me. They they looked at a tweet and got mad. Like, it doesn't bother me. So it becomes a little bit of a force field, which is like bombing kind of helps you not care when you don't connect with people. Not in a way where like, I do want to connect with people. I always want people to have a good time. My whole job is to to bring laughter and joy. But if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That it was never my intention to give people a bad night. I mean, I, so I've been a fan of yours, but like before we started talking and it, like, it seems to me that your, your audience has like, I feel like you have a specific audience. Like you have this, this group that kind of are your fans and they get you and understand you. And the reason that they are your fans is because, because your, your voice quote unquote, is different to like the people that have got the Netflix specials. I feel like you're like you talk about different stuff and you and you present in a way that is is kind of pretty like a, a an alternative to the, I guess, mainstream comedy and, and mainstream of comedy would be that which is presented to us by the big networks and, and so forth. Um, and so I, I feel like the people that that are with you kind of they get you and that's what they were looking for yeah in some ways I mean I I'm and I'm I'm grateful for it because I think all artists want to be distinct the same way that like you can look at something and be like oh that's a you know Jason Pollock and or you know what I mean like they say good screenwriting like good characters is you can cover their names and you can just read their lines and you can know that these are distinct different people that are talking and i would say the same thing with comedy that even if i wasn't speaking the words if somebody heard like saw my joke just written out you'd be like oh that sounds like liz mealy that's kind of how her brain works um i i i take great pride in that and and i've 
what I've noticed probably in the last couple of years is I have a lot of male fans that don't like female comics. And I find myself having to fight for female comics because my friends are female comics. There's brilliant female comics out there. And I am not the same way that I never liked when a guy was just like, you're different. You're not like the other girls. Go fuck yourself. What are you fucking talking about? There's almost nothing. Maybe I'm not like fucking talking about nail polish as a conversational piece, but like I'm not much different. Um, I would say the same thing about female comedy. I always try to fight some of my fans who will be like, you're different. I don't usually like female comics, but you're great. And I'll be like, I appreciate that. That makes me feel good. But really what I hear is I looked at what the networks were putting out. It was the same kind of oversexed or women talking about sex, women trying to be in this male field and and glomming onto what was already being done and just doing a female version of it, as opposed to I talk about what I want to talk about from the perspective I want to talk about. And it sometimes it's about dating, but mostly it's about kind of everything. And it's more storytelling and it's more honest and, and more feelings perspective as opposed to um, uh, being shocking to be shocking. Um, uh, so what I usually do is when I have some fans say that I go, Hey, I appreciate that. But here are some of the, if you like me, there's so many other female comics you would like that do what I do, which is just have a strong perspective, are uniquely funny. And, you know, we just happen to be female as opposed to our, our label is that we are a female comic. And so I'll show them my friend, Adrian Appalucci, who, you know, just did a small thing on Netflix, um, on the degenerates. And she's extremely dark, like truly like can kind of turn people off dark. There's jokes she has that I don't like, but (laughs) she is the best writer I think out there. She always has a unique perspective. Um, Carmen Lynch, very similar in the sense that she's surprisingly dark sometimes, but she actually comes across as more silly. And, um, while we're all three different perspectives or uh, my friend Maria Shahada, she's actually, um, She's American, but she's based out of uh, uh, out of London. And she just tells these stories that like she takes you on a journey you never thought you would go on. And so for me, I look at some of my friends and these other female comics and I go, we're very distinctly different, but we actually all happen to be female. And then you look back and you're like, that's what co- guy comics are allowed to be. They're allowed to be uniquely themselves and nobody puts them into a box. And so I think for me... A lot of comedy fans go to the networks and they keep choosing the same styles over and over again, whether you're a female comic or any other comic, and they're getting bored as opposed to all the comics that aren't completely on the forefront, haven't been chosen in any way, are they made a point to uniquely be themselves. And while it might not be the same, uh, you know, connection because they're not on some of the bigger um, platforms, they stand out. And I think the internet, and I'm very grateful for social media and YouTube because that's completely how I've made my fan base. I've had a couple of TV stuff here and there, but where people have discovered me is viral videos. And and I, it's allowed me to be the unedited version of myself so that I didn't have to um, change who I was to get more success. And that's where I feel really grateful. And I think that's what the audiences are picking up on is that this is the raw version of what I thought I was getting when I watched Netflix or Comedy Central. Is the travel thing um, uniquely you or are there other comics who are like traveling as like intensely as you do? In the US, most comics can't make a living without traveling in in the US. Like we're, um, you just don't get paid 
wherever you are, um, very well so that the only way you can really make money is leaving. And that's why we're, we've been pretty crippled by the pandemic. We are very gig to gig, um, art form. Um, so you make your money and you build your fan base by, by traveling. Now traveling overseas has become very uniquely me and a small group of people because it, it's, right. it costs more money. And if you don't have the fan base or you don't have the connections. So think of it this way. Like it took me a long time to build the TV because TV credits are what gets you bookers to pay attention to you, a fan base, um, uh, just, uh, credentials in the field so that people respect you. So my credits, almost like college, now that I think about it, they don't cross over overseas. So I almost had to start over when I started going um, to the UK and um, Europe and even Australia and stuff. But um, I took a lot of risks because I was unhappy in the US and I felt like I was being overlooked. And they paid off in the sense that I made a bunch of connections overseas and I started to kind of build my fan base worldwide. And then also, like I said, I I focused on social media and YouTube, which is also international, as opposed to a lot of my friends' earlier credits were Comedy Central, which even though there's a UK Comedy Central and there's an Asia Comedy Central, they don't have a lot of crossover. So in a lot of ways, what I did online was universal. And then I started to make my traveling universal and, and, I was very fortunate that because I talk about feelings and emotions and um, most of my standup is based in how I feel about things as opposed to like cultural references or, um, or I don't know, situational things. Um, it just made me easily, just easy for me to cross lines, I guess. So I do think that aspect of my career has become very unique. And I think it's definitely changed my standup. I, I talk about traveling and what that means to me and how that's affected me because I'm, I didn't come from a traveling family. My mom, my mom came to London for the first time two years ago um, to go on a trip with me. And that's the first time she's ever left the country. And that was in her sixties. And I think my dad, my dad went to Canada once like, so I don't come from a family that travels. Yeah, I, I, I've become the person I become the person in my community that like if anybody goes overseas, whether they're like going on vacation and they want to see if they can get spots or they want to try to tour or the fact that I did the Edinburgh fin- Fringe Festival um, almost four years ago now. Um, I'm the person that people usually go, oh, Liz did it. And I, I'll kind of give them information on how to kind of start either just start getting more work over there or just they, you know, they're going there for vacation anyway and they want to try to get some spots. But I, I'm very much, it has given me, it's given me self-esteem. It's uh, given me a whole new um, outlook on life. It's brought in my fan base and given me so many experiences that I'm so pro. If people don't find you funny here, go find your people. Like, honestly, that's why I started uh, I went to Spain for the first time because one of my college buddies was from Spain. He was an artist. He made he made that picture right there. Um, uh, Bill, the Bill Murray one. So, um, so he was an artist that I went to college with and then he moved back home and he was having his first exhibit. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Spain. It was like my first really overseas travel. And I did a show there and I went to his exhibit and I was like, oh, OK, let me see how I can get to the UK because I noticed very early in my career, that, you know, New York is very touristy. I would have 
tourists come up to me from England and they would always be like, you're so funny. And I'd be like, nobody says that. Like nobody feels that way. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I was born in the wrong place. So even though it took me about five or six years to finally figure out how to get there and make money there and what have you, I knew very early on that for some reason, my sensibilities and my sense of humor did well over in England specifically. And now I can see like a lot of Scandinavia likes my humor. I did, I, uh, Glasgow is probably some of my favorite shows I've ever done. Um, Australia, like Sydney has become like, I did two weeks in Sydney and I just felt like I could be myself. I just felt so accepted. Um, uh, where else? Like there's just certain places that like, I don't know. I just, a part of me is like, maybe I've not that I was born in the wrong place, but I was just like, maybe I've made the wrong friends. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's like super powerful because I think not everyone is born in that an area where everyone just instantly fits in or things just work and to yeah. actually go and search for those people like those people are probably out there like no matter who you are what you're like whatever you're into the world is massive and if you just actually go and search for them they will be there eventually it just might take a bit more effort than it takes someone else yeah and i've always said i was a punk band like i've always referred to my career as a punk band i, I used to pay five dollars and go into these basements in like bumblefuck new jersey and see like bigwig or like i don't know annie flag like now some of them are bigger than others but like i remember being like, oh, these people like this too and feeling connected yeah. to the other people that are at the show and then being, you know, I'm not somebody that's like super into music. Like I feel like even now it's like my siblings are the ones that introduce me to stuff. But I now kind of get that you discover something early and you feel like you're a part of that that artist's growth. And I don't know, I just, I can see why people are drawn to me in the sense that like they feel like they're discovering what I'm doing. It's different than what they see on tv and they're somewhat invested in in my career and in a lot of ways i feel like i'm going around the world trying to find my people i mean i've got one there i got six there there's 20 over there and we're just gonna all come together and hopefully pay my rent that's the goal because <laughs> <laughs> I, I like i was a big fan of like punk and stuff I used to love anti-flag and i think it is one of those things where what bands especially you love them in the early days and then as they get bigger and more popular you like them less and i imagine that's almost like if you just think about going to those gigs if you if they're like green days who i think is a good example it was like i used to love them when i was like really young then they had some huge like hits and got really mainstream and then it's almost like if i went to one of their gigs now i wouldn't be able to find my people there because it would just yeah. be a bit of everyone and I suppose that's probably why people have those connections to as, as soon as it gets too big, then it's harder to find the people who you're like within that area. Yeah. Yeah. There is something interesting about that. Like you come to see my gigs now, it's 150 people. It feels like you could make a friend as yeah. opposed to you go to see Kevin Hart. It's 30,000 people. And you're like, I don't, I don't even get why that guy's yeah. here. Like, I don't, why does he also like Kevin Hart? I don't get it. Um, no, that's interesting. I, I, and I, you know, clearly everybody wants to be successful and, 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 um, reach more and more people, but I'm not, it doesn't make me sad to find out that I'm not mainstream in a lot of ways, or I might not be mainstream because at least I'm staying authentic to myself, if that makes sense. And I think with the internet, it's like, you don't have to be mainstream. There's enough people who aren't in the mainstream to support you as a, a creator. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I can make a career by being universal because before 
um, you know, I get emails that like I have a bunch of fans in India. I've never been to India. I just got a, a message from somebody from Romania. They're like, hey, are you ever going to come to Romania? And I was like, well, you're the first fan I've heard from <laughs> Romania. So if you could get like 50 other yeah, people. To tell like all me. your friends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always like, if you can get at least 50 to 100 people to enjoy what I'm doing, I, I'll go to Romania. Let's do it. Like, so it's just it, clearly it makes it harder to find people all over the place. But like the Internet and social media have made it so that you can you're no longer bound by just your your barriers or where you live or where you can get to which is refreshing because like using kevin hart as a a specific example like i thought i was broken when i first found his comedy because i was just like i just don't i don't think i've ever laughed at a kevin hart joke i think the dude (laughs) i think the dude's fucking amazing and if it when he does one of his inspirational speeches i'm like fuck yeah kevin hart like i can take over the world but his comedy i just don't find it funny but luckily there's the internet so i can go and find out find who i do find funny yeah and also i i mean i remember kevin hart when he just had like a half hour special on comedy central 20 years ago so i i i like some of his earlier stuff as opposed to some of his later stuff um also he's just not my style and i i i always I find it interesting. If I say Kevin Hart's not my style, you don't think, oh, you don't like black comedians. But if I say Whitney Cummings isn't my style, people are like, oh, you don't like female comedians. Like for some reason, female comedians are a genre as opposed to other comics can just be who they are. So there's also, I think in a lot of ways, diverse comedians. So like Asian comedians, which are also not very well represented, um, any kind of minority comedian um, other than black comics. Cause in, in comedy, black comics are seen as um, just their stereotype is It's like black and Jewish comics are the ones that are kind of taken over comedy and they're known as the funniest ones. And then just general white guys, people are like, they could be funny. They maybe not be funny. And then it seems to be like Indian, um, any kind of um, uh, minority and women and female comedians, um, Asian, whatever, like, we're just kind of, or Latina, like we're just kind of this bottom rung where people just assume we're not good. And then you as an individual have to kind of prove yourself. And so I think when it comes to that, those kind of stereotypes about comedy, you have to break through a couple of extra barriers. And then all you have done is made it so you're successful as opposed to a group of people are successful. So like Kevin Hart, because he's a black comic, he can just be Kevin Hart and people are drawn to Kevin Hart, but he also helps every other black comic. But like, if I become successful, I don't help every other female comic, if that makes sense. How strange. It is. It's, it's just the nature of where stereotypes lie in our, because like, I don't know what the stereotypes are for street artists or artists in general, but there's clearly these weird unspoken rules in everybody's community. And the barriers that have to keep being pushed, like, um, uh, Remy Youssef has um, uh, a show on Hulu. I don't know if it's something that you guys are able to have access to, but he's a Muslim comedian that has a show now. He had an HBO special, I think, last year. But, like, his success is huge for anybody that's a minority comic, anybody, you know, the fact that we have so many horrible stereotypes about Muslims in the U.S. and it and just, you know, you know everything that sucks about us. Um, so... That's just not only for the world is that wonderful, but for the comedy community, that's wonderful because we let it lets people know that other people's voices matter. The problem is you have one Muslim comedian that's doing well and they go, we did it. We solved racism. 
We now have one Muslim comedian that's on television, as opposed to there's tons of different voices from other um, uh, uh, other people of color, other people of different religions. But we decide that as long as we give one a little bit of a chance, we've done our work and we don't really we don't really level the playing field um, as authentically as the industry thinks. So that's what I like about the internet is anybody that can cultivate a fan base can work and anybody that can work can reach more people and you can rise up and, and, and make a name for yourself and have a career for yourself and eventually be on TV, not because somebody chose you, but because your fan base chose you. Does that make it harder for you because as soon as your material goes online, do you then have to retire it and start writing new stuff? Yeah, and that's why I'm kind of, honestly, everything that you see online is is dead already. So most of the clips I posted, even before I put my special out, I hadn't done in years. Um, and sometimes I put them out because something happened in the news and it, it referenced that and it, it, has a, it has a new life to itself. So Smart. I had a joke from probably six years ago about um, a cop on the subway. Uh, I had my feet up on the subway seat and he kicked my feet and told me to get my feet down. And two years ago, a girl in LA got arrested for having her feet up on the subway, on the subway chair. So a fan was like, Hey, this reminds me of your joke. And I was like, Oh, and so I like released it and I put it out there and it did really well. And it connected with people. And then I re-released it a second time because of all the stuff that's going on with cops. So in some ways, most of the stuff I put on the internet is either already kind of um, valid to what's going on right now and or it's done and I just want people to have access to it. Like I released my entire first album, the video of my first album during the pandemic, like uh, um, uh, late March, cause it was like my comedy anniversary. And I was like, oh, I think we're gonna be stuck inside for a while. But I was giving it away at shows. If you signed up for my mailing list, I would give you my first album for a dollar just to like get rid of my merchandise and just so people could see what my earlier work was. Because when I released it, I didn't really have a fan base and I was proud of my work, but nobody was really seeing it. So now that video has almost, I think over 600,000 views and it's getting people to see my new special. And I probably gained like 10,000 fans just from that thing that I don't even do any of those jokes anymore. Like they, some of them are a little bit, like I have a joke about how Tinder is new and that's not real anymore. Um, so there's a couple of people that are like, why is this out now? And I have to know like, oh, it's from like 2015. But um, to me, I release, I, everything I do live for the most part is unreleased, which has made doing Zoom shows really tricky because now people around the world are seeing my live performance before mm. It's um, ready to be kind of seen in any other art. Mm. Like it's it's the internet, but it's live. So it's just a little weird. Usually I have to go, you know, you go to Texas, you go to Tennessee, you go to Florida. But now that's now it's all via the internet. But I'm a little bit, I kind of keep my newer stuff to my chest. And then when I'm ready to put it out as a full hour, then the rest of the world gets to see it. And how do those Zoom things work in terms of you seeing reactions to people? Like, do you, can you still really read the room in a way or? Um, and so ways like sometimes people are unmuted i i do a new material show every two weeks um called zoom diner where it's just three comics telling jokes to each other and kind of helping them workshop it and i keep everybody mute on that and i mostly get the feedback from the chat yeah and um but like i'll do zoom shows that are almost exactly like this and i'll have the entire audience sometimes i'll have the audience in gallery mode and i can see people's faces and sometimes i make it so i can't see their faces because 
if you think about it in a dark room when I'm doing stand-up, I usually can't see anybody. Maybe I can okay. see the front yeah. row. But when I tell jokes, I'm actually looking above people's heads and I'm not really fully making eye contact most of the time. So I've been doing park shows. I've been doing Zoom shows and it's all in daylight and I'm just not used to all this eye contact. <laughs> and you don't really realize that like when I'm doing my setup, people are kind of just listening and they look kind of dead faced. And it's kind of distracting where you're like, do they hate me? Are they mad at me? Am I going to get murdered? And then I tell my punchline and they're released and they're laughing and blah, blah, blah. But it's I, I found it's a new way of seeing the audience and it's kind of quite distracting. And then also Zoom shows, if everybody's laughing, they're disjointed and it's not a collective group and the laughter can actually throw off your timing. Yeah. So it's 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 just it's not the best. It's something and I'm grateful for it, but it's. It's not the the best, if I'm being honest. It's making the best of a bad situation. Yeah, I'm grateful for it. You know, if this yeah. happened in 2000, I don't think we would have, yeah. it would be much harder and I would be much rustier of a performer. So I am grateful to have something, but I'm more grateful for these, like, even these park shows aren't ideal or these rooftop shows aren't ideal, but I'm grateful for them. And we're just like slowly climbing back into some kind of normalcy. So you put your first special out on YouTube. What was the decision making process there? So I, I tried to sell it. I mean, the goal was to to sell it. And I was I was actually close with Comedy Central Digital. Um, but then two weeks after they were like, ah, things aren't great here. And I don't think we can buy Like they had a budget cut. And they like froze all budget stuff. And they're like, I don't think it's going to work out. And then two weeks later, they fired almost everybody. Um, so what really happened was I was hoping to sell it to somebody bigger. And because of the pandemic and people getting fired and chaos and blah, 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 it just it was just bad timing in a lot of ways. Um, I always knew it might not be sold. And I always had YouTube as a backup plan. And I feel grateful that I've been investing my energy and time into YouTube for the last 10 years. So I already had like a fan base. I've already had viral videos. Um, uh, so I knew, so like, I don't know how it works like for you and how you kind of make money or even build, um, a fan base around your work, but we don't make a lot of, like, I don't make a lot of money from the internet. I don't even make a lot of money from building up my acts during the week, I make all my money from live performances on the weekends, like truly Saturday, Sunday, sometimes Friday is where I make all my money. So the goal was to put out my special, gain a fan base. Who cares if I didn't make money from the special? These new people would pay a cover charge to come see me live and I would make all my money back from having a fan base. And now it's like I didn't make money and I don't have any way to make money off my new fan base. Hopefully they'll still be there in a year when I start touring again or hopefully when things start happening. Hopefully they have jobs. Like I'm so invested in people getting their jobs back because I'm mm. like, if you don't have money to come see me, in some ways this is all a waste. Um, but to me, those these jokes were done. I already filmed them. It was already on a special. I I get really tired of my material really quickly so that it takes me about anywhere from, depending on how complicated the joke is, anywhere from three weeks to six months to polish a joke. So then the polished version of the joke, I perform for anywhere from six months to a year and a half. And then I'm done. I Once my full hour is done, I record it. And then next I start over. So if you were to see me do an hour right now, it would be 30% stuff from my special because I, you know, I haven't been able to write as fast as I normally do. And then 30% of the new stuff that I've been working on since I taped it. But, um, 
the goal really, if this would have happened in a, you know, our past lives, the special would have came out sometime, hopefully in like March or April. And I would be on the road and you would be seeing, um, at least 50, if not 60% new material. And my goal is to have a new hour every year and a half, two years. I think I was listening to Andrew Santino's podcast and they were talking about uh, what happened after 9-11 and how everyone thought like comedy was going to be completely dead because everyone was so sad. And in fact, it was the uh, like the total opposite. And I would imagine that that will probably be the same thing after the pandemic is like, we're going to need to laugh. Yeah, we're going to have a comedy boom. It's just about when, because unfortunately where the best comedy rooms, especially like we're not talking about famous people is, is in the comedy clubs. It's, it's dark, it's basements, it's crowded. There's, yeah. you know, if you're, if you have a mold allergy, I feel bad for you. Like there's <laughs> dank, sad places. So um, to me, we are the breeding ground for the, for the worst um, places for the coronavirus. So we were the first to shut down. We're going to be the last to open. So when, it is safe, whether it's a vaccine or whatever, when it is safe and things start opening up again, we have to worry about what clubs made it, you know, we're mom and pop mm, shops. It's not, yeah. um, there's a couple of chain comedy clubs in the UK. There's like the Glee comedy clubs in the U S there's like, um, the improvs and stuff like that, but most of them aren't chains. And even some of the chains might lose some of the locations. So we're talking about mom and pop shops that might have not been able to survive if the government doesn't help them, which a lot of them I've, you know, I've talked to my UK comedy friends and you guys have decided that comedy is an art. Therefore they're not getting funding. Um, and a lot of similarness is going on where they're, they're supporting Broadway, but they're not supporting comedy clubs. And you're like, cool. So just because our tickets aren't a thousand dollars, we're not seen as art. Um, so we have to see what comedy clubs are going to survive then because comedy clubs are suffering, they're going to go for famous comics because they want to have higher ticket prices and they want to guarantee that yeah. they can fill the room so they can make money back. So now you have less famous people not being able to get the stage time and the rooms to, to work out their stuff. And then you have audience members that have lost their jobs, can, currently can't have jobs, have back payments for rent that they can't spend 20 bucks or however much money to go to a comedy club. So there's going to be a time where it's going to be rough, but once things start to get back going, however long that might be, because I do think we're headed towards, at least in the U S cause we've handled this so shitty. I think we're headed towards a depression and a really bad one. But when things do start to get better, I think there's going to be a live performance boom because we have been locked up because this is how people want to meet others and hang out with others. And I do think people want to laugh and be entertained and have something new because also Hollywood is also on pause and it takes way more money, way more effort and way more time to put something out as opposed to I could do a live performance tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think you're a survivor as well. So like whatever happens, even if all the comedy clubs shut down, like you'll, you'll figure it out. Yeah. I think, I think in, in general, our art form, very similar to, I think street art is a, a survival art form. We can do it anywhere. We'll figure it. If you, you can go down an alley and there's going to be three people telling jokes, like we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, I, I think, we didn't, we don't need much. And, and it's become very obvious in the fact that I'm doing these park shows where they just put a sign that says stand up in the park. There's no microphone. You know, somebody's, there's a volleyball game over there. There's somebody playing the trombone over there. Um, there's kids crying behind us and we're doing stand up. So we're making it work even in New York with, with 
very few options. Um, and if I'm being honest, I, you know, while I make my living doing standup, I still to this day do a lot of free shows and I, I've always done it to those free shows are, are equally as important and keep me as sharp as the paid shows. And I've never really turned my back on always trying to get better. So this might be a time where I don't make a lot of money, which is unfortunate because I was just starting to really be financially stable. Um, but I've lived, I, how I'm living right now, which is so minimally and no expect, like just truly paying my expenses and buying nothing. I lived like that for 10, 12 years because I wanted to do stand up and the compromises. If I keep my expenses down, I can do stand up full time. And if I have high expenses, I have to have a part time or a full time job. So I've lived like this before. It's not fun. I miss sushi, but <laughs> I, I can do it. Yeah, that's what me and Adam have always said. It's like, we we call it the beans and noodles time because that's all we could yeah. afford to eat. Yeah, and it's like we could go back to beans and noodles tomorrow. Like we know, like we did it for six years. We know we can do it. Yeah, it's it's always there. And and you you understand what your sacrifice is for. So I feel more bad for people that have three kids and they can't go to work because they have no childcare and their work wasn't even their passion. They were just doing it so they could feed their kids. So to me, I feel very fortunate right now that my full-time job was my passion. Um, it might not look the same as it does post pandemic, but it'll be there in some form. And we, I might be a part of the crew that help helps build it back up. And that's kind of cool to think about. And I think you're being so smart. I think like putting, putting it out, putting your special out on YouTube was like such the right idea because like during this time you can just use that to now like build your audience get more awareness and the best way to do that is like if you've got an hour of content there like put it out that's that's gold because i think a lot of people would maybe like they'd sit on it and think like oh well i'm just gonna wait for things to get better whereas you're like put it out write some new shit so that when we go you can go to the new stuff yeah, I, I, I'm happiest when I'm current and I feel like I'm always evolving. And so I want my stand up to evolve with me. So like, I have friends that are like that, you know, that joke from three years ago is your best joke. I was like, yeah, but I'm not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I was really bitter when I wrote that joke or I was really sad about a breakup when I wrote that joke or, you know, I was suicidal when I wrote that joke and I don't feel that way anymore. It doesn't mean that I don't relate to that version of myself and I'm not proud of the comedy that came out of that version of myself, but me telling it feels disingenuous. So I try, yeah. there's always going to be a delay because like I said, the first version is never as good as the polished version. And I do morph in that time. So there's times where I write a joke after a breakup and it's all like, fucking, I hate you and you should die. <laughs> and by the time it's polished, I've worked through my emotions and I don't feel that way about that person anymore, but I still tell the joke because I'm proud of it. And it helped, it's the thing that helped me evolve and get over this breakup. So, but if I do it too long and a part of me is a bored of the language, I don't, it's not a surprise to me anymore. And I just get further and further away from that person. And I've experienced so many things and I've grown as a person that I always, I always want to kind of present at least live on stage, the, the most current version of myself. So, um, even this special, there's jokes that I wrote. It came out in May, but I wrote the jokes probably two or three years ago and they were the earliest jokes. And like, so like my dyslexic joke in my special, I was one of the last jokes I wrote, but like 
I think my ringworm joke is one of the first jokes I wrote. So I'm proud of my ringworm joke, but I don't feel the same way about it because it was about a dude. I don't yeah. I even tell you what his name is. So, you know, it's, it's that, it's that kind of weird disconnection that I like being fully connected to my material when I'm saying it, because I think it brings out the best performance in me. And the show's called Self Help Me, and you've read a lot of self-help books. What's your relationship with that? I have a love-hate relationship with self-help books. I think they have been really important to my emotional growth, and they've empowered me in a lot of ways when I felt like nothing empowered me. But I also think they're addictive, and I think they're a Band-Aid, and I think they feel like growth, and they not... And there's a lot of blind sides with a self-help book. So if a self-help book is trying to help you understand your emotions, you have to have some awareness of your emotions and you have to have some awareness of yourself so that you can, a self-help book could only fix what you're aware of and you have to be open to learning about yourself. And so if you're so walled off and closed up, you can read this book and be like, wow, that was really powerful and do nothing. As opposed to, I think the combination of self-help books, therapy, friends that you can vent to and be open with, um, having experiences that take you um, outside of your comfort zone, all of those things can kind of push you to grow as opposed to, I don't know, just a self-help book. To me, it's it's sometimes one step forward, three steps back because you can learn something and unlearn it so quickly as opposed to therapy. And if you need medication, medication, um, uh, uh, having group therapy, having um, uh, experiences that take you outside of your comfort zone, all those things can kind of push you a lot further than a book that, I don't know, it just, it feels so um, like false healing. Yeah. I feel the same way about like those, the the really inspirational speeches on YouTube with yeah. like the roaring music and everything. And they, there's, they're very good at pushing certain emotional triggers that in the moment feel so amazing and you do truly feel like you can do anything. And then I look on YouTube and I see like this has been viewed like 3 million times and you just think like, where are all of those 3 million people? Like clearly most people don't then follow through with their actions to actually do what the video or the book is talking about. Otherwise we'd just be surrounded by like winners constantly. Yeah, well, growth is painful it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And I, I'm, you know, I have certain jokes where I talk about breakups, but I have one specific breakup 10 years ago that, I mean, I was, it hurt me a lot. And I probably was depressed for like two years. I wrote some of my best material in that time, but I also, I had to come to grips with how much I hated myself, how much I um, self-sabotaged myself, both in my career and my friendships and relationships, how uh, I didn't like a lot of things my parents did, but I was mimicking them, whether I knew it or not. And I had to come to grips with, I had a lot of really bad emotional habits that were hurting me and hurting others. And even if the intent wasn't to hurt people, I was still hurting people. And that doesn't feel good when you go out, when you feel like you're going out of your way to be a good person and the result is you're not. So I had to uh, be aware that there was a problem. I put myself in therapy and I, I remember telling my therapist like three years in, like, can we have a session where we don't talk about how much I suck? Like, can we have something where I don't have a revelation about how I've been hurting people? Because it was so painful to be 
be shown a mirror. And even though, like I said, it wasn't intentional, I was hurting myself and others. And it was, the first step is awareness. Then the next step is trying to stop it. And I don't know if you've ever like, let's say your goal is not to say a phrase. Like if I have a habit of saying, go fuck yourself too much. So if my, my, if I say it without even thinking, it's like truly unconscious. When you try to make it conscious, you say something. My initial thought is that go fuck yourself. And I go, fuck the whole, and you're just mad at yourself all day. So then the next thing is like, okay, I'm going to try. And so maybe you get to go fuck. And then, and eventually it takes, it could take months. It could take years, but eventually you, I don't feel like a lot of my bad habits are gone. If anything, I feel them. I don't say them. And then I process them on my own, as opposed to I was making them other people's problems. And I hope someday I get to a point where I don't have to hit all of those emotions to go through something. But it was work and it's still work. And I still disappoint myself and I still unintentionally hurt people and I still have bad habits, but I try to constantly be aware of them and reframe them and fix them. So I think people read a self-help book, they watch an inspirational speech, they read an Instagram quote and they go, yes, I want to be that. And then it takes work. And I think that's actually a lot of being an artist is like, where people are like, that's dope. I want to do that. That's so cool. And then they find out how much unfun work is involved and they go, nah, nah. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And I think if you've done it in another area of your life, if you, if you are an artist or, or whatever your craft may be, as soon as you've done it that one time, you then realize that you can apply it in other areas of your life because you're like I've got the grit to be able to push through something when it's hard or boring or whatever it is so it's like whatever when when you do have that one thing that you that you've become like masterful at you then know you know what it takes to actually do it for other things and then everything can branch out from there yeah you 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 kind of you're not scared First of all, you see that the work pays off. You see how much work goes into it. And it's also, it stopped me from getting invested in stuff that I I probably would have not done because I now understand how much work goes into each endeavor that I go, okay, I'm, this is, I'm passionate enough about this that I'm going to do the work and I'm not as passionate. So I'm going to walk away. And that's actually what's taught me about friendship and dating where I go, no, that's going to be a lot of work and I don't want to do it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I'm just going to walk away. Like I, I, it's not fair to either of us to half-ass this when we know that's going to be a lot of work. 100%. So what advice would you give to people who are who want to do what they love for their job, um, pandemics aside? Yeah. Honestly, it's to me, the best thing you can do is, is, is be a fan first. I think uh, watching as much stand-up as I did, and I say watch all of it, watch the shitty comedy, watch the the good comedy, watch the stuff that you're not like, not really sure about because it, it you're cultivating your taste. And by understanding what you don't like, you'll be surprised how many things where you go, Oh, I don't like the way that person tells jokes. I think it's really like low hump, like low hanging fruit, garbage comedy. And then you start writing and you're like, Oh, I wrote, I write this shit. I don't want to do this. And you you can kind of have an awareness of how easy it is to go down that path. So I think first becoming a fan and taking in a diverse amount of your craft, good and bad, in your taste, makes you understand what your goals are and what your what your aesthetic is and what you hope, what kind of reaction you hope to get from people. And then from there, it's just about doing it. Like I always tell young comics, it's about having 
having like this, a part of your brain that stops you as you're thinking stuff. So, you know, most people think comedy is like, well, what's funny about this? I don't really ask myself what's funny about stuff. I usually ask myself what's interesting about it or what, why am I stuck on it? It's usually sticky thoughts. Why am I so angry about this thing that most people wouldn't be angry about? Why am I so confused by this concept yet everybody else seems to get it? Why am I so upset that this person did this thing that I can't stop thinking about it? Why am I so excited that I can't even focus? I just have to tell every about. So I take these huge emotions and I'll just write them down even if I have no pathway to get out of them. I just go, this woman at CVS asked to cut in line and then started telling me about her dead friend's mother. And I am mad. I am mad. Why? And I remember it was happening. My CVS joke and my special, it was happening. And I was so pissed off. And then I was laughing at myself for being pissed off. And while she was getting checked out, I started writing the notes for that joke because I was aware that I was delusionally angry about a 10 second interaction that I should not have been angry about. So for me, I think the best thing you can do, at least specifically as a young comic, is you just start having an awareness of your thoughts and without judging them, you write them down. So stop being like, it has to be perfect when it goes down. It's, this is my thought, write it down. You know, why do we love Jesus? Write it down. Why cat? Why do cats knock things off shelves? Write it down. You don't have to have unique punchlines or full thoughts yet. It's just about getting everything on paper and then the next step is fleshing it out and starting to understand yourself. But I think the best step for your, the first two best steps is becoming a fan and then not bullying yourself and not editing yourself and just letting your, letting, getting to know yourself in a way that most people might not know. Because if you're talking to a friend, unless they're your best friend, like my friends make fun of me all the time. I'll just say something and I'll be like, that tree is beautiful. And they're like, you're so special needs sometimes. And I was like, what? I thought it was beautiful and the world should know about it. But like, think about how if you're in an office or you're around people you don't really know, you 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 self-censor yourself. You don't say all your thoughts because you don't want to be judged or you don't want to upset people or you're not sure how people are going to react to it. At the very least, stop censoring yourself and put it on paper and start from there. Boom. Boom. Uh, Liz, where can people find you online? Um, everything is at Liz Mealy. Um, uh, I always tell people probably Instagram and uh, YouTube is my, this, Instagram is mostly cat pictures and YouTube is videos of my standup. So maybe not Instagram if that's not your thing, but um, uh, yeah, that's the best places to, to find me. And then, oh, I have a podcast um, that I started during the pandemic uh, called Two Non-Doctors that I started with my friend Maria Shahada, who I mentioned earlier. And um, we just talk about medical stuff with little to no accuracy in a funny way. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Liz Mele, go fuck yourself and we'll see you soon. <laughs>